Okay, Rabotel, we've been discussing the letters of Harambam, and of course that adds a lot of insight as to who Harambam was by reading his personal letters, but we've discussed as well that one has to be very careful in reading the personal letter as to what the real implications of that letter really are. Is it personal, private, and therefore true? Or is it only because it's only to one person the Rambam may be just saying things that it may not ordinarily mean? And sometimes from the, from the context itself, you do get a very good sense as to the veracity, the truth, quotient of that particular letter of Harambam. We began speaking last time about Achmelu. Now we discussed Achmelu. Now we're, they were actually all, the only hope of the Jewish people at this point in time. And among this letter is very down on everything. This is the last letter that he wrote, 1199 after the Kamira. Hanamam passed away in 1204. So from 1135 to 1204. And this is the very last written notion that we have about Hanamam's concerns. We began with the first two paragraphs which we had read. We begin recording a pasuk from Shira Shirim, and of course it's a very... we have enough copies? It's a very flourishy, florid kind of opening line. Who is it? that sheds its brightness, its beauty, beautiful as the moon, brilliant as the sun, that adds all as the banners of the kings. Pasuk from Shira Shirim. This is this wonderful community that is across the Mediterranean, that is in Provence, that is in Lunel. That engraved on their heart is the Torah, and their bells of water in Torah itself is set and ready to go. The keyword of here would be Levadam. Nowadays, he's saying they're the only hope for the future of the Jewish people. The community of Lunel, they are very wise rabbis. Now, a lot of this, of course, could be simply rhetorical. But it's very nice to begin. We'll see as we go along that the Ramam is not really being rhetorical here, but he really sees that the only way that Torah is going to be continue to study in the proper fashion would be with Hachmel Lunel who've shown this incredible and tremendous interest in the works of the Rambam. Remember that there are two schools of thought, there's Spain and there's Northern France. In Spain itself, we have the issue of intellectualism, Kochmah at large. Philosophy is studied, and the great accomplishments of the Islamic philosophers is celebrated, and the Jews absorb from the Islamic environment the notion of thinking, advancing, philosophizing, and trying to add to the beauty of Torah itself. Remember that the greatest work of Jewish grammar of Yabba Janah, one of the, it's, for a thousand years that stood as the work of Jewish grammar till the 19th century. Nothing surpassed it. Brilliant, extraordinary. From the year 1000 to the year 2000, this is the work of Jewish grammar that one studies. Where did it come from? Because of the great influence that the Arabs had in the study of grammar of the Quran. For them, the proof that the Quran is from God is the beauty of the language. The Arabic language, in fact, is a very beautiful language. Those who know it, know it. My daughter's now taking a course in Arabic, and she loves the course. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. She just has the beauty, the lyricism, the rhythmic of it. She loves the language. Not what you speak, because she speaks real stuff. She did, she, you know, you're doing the... Uh, the worst curses Well, you learn the wrong part of the language. You learn the curses part of the language. She doesn't know any of them. I checked on that. And she just sees it as if she glories. She walks up and down uh, in Broadway in Manhattan, just saying, Allahu Akbar, and things like that, which she doesn't understand. It's very funny. And she said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? But it's funny how she loves the language. I studied, of course, German, French, Arabic as well. And German I found very harsh and very difficult. I didn't like German whatsoever. But Arabic is a beautiful language, especially in the Nahawi. When you study literary Arabic, you see the flowing diplomatic language just carries you along on its wings of poetry. And what's interesting is that that's a, a 1500 or 1400-year-old argument that the Arabs have made that the proof that the Quran is from God is the beauty of the language. So they initiated in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries study of language, poetry, and the Jews caught up. We learned from them about poetry and about metaphors and how to write in this flawed kind of fashion. So, of course, they, the Islamics in philosophy, in literary studies, all encouraged and pushed the Jews. And there was an atmosphere and environment where you could flourish in this fashion. And the golden age of Spain was actually born because of the impetus of the Arabic studies, which is wonderful and beautiful. We took the ball further than they went. They remained rooted in their own period of time and didn't go further. We went further. Harambam was the culminating personality of one might, what my, one might say the golden age of Spain. And Harambam over here now sees that after all that he's accomplished, he sees now that this notion of chokhmah, of philosophy, of science, of all this is now going to take a dip. He understood that, and in fact it was of course the case that culture and understanding went to northern France, 
Ashir Barat Tosafot, who began a completely different track of Limut Torah, without having the openness of Chokhmah at all. And we discussed last week why, because Latin was the literary language which nobody in the Jewish world spoke, with the one, two exceptions, Ashram, etc. But on the other hand, Arabic, which when that was the intellectual language, everybody spoke Arabic. So we engaged in discussion about philosophy and all kinds of things. We talked to each other intellectually. The same way that if you only study Yiddish, you're not going to be open to the world. But if you study English, then you at least have an access to the world of intellectualism. Harambam, of course, wrote extraordinarily well. He wrote his major work, Abu'l-Bukim, in Arabic. And he bemoans the fact that you'll see in a minute. But he feels that now their obligation of Hamelunel is Ulhazit Bedekal Chumah. What should always take note when the Raman makes a decision between Chumah and Torah. Chumah is study philosophy and science, which he sees as a handmaiden of Torah study. For him, Chumah is not something that is alien to Torah, alien to Torah at all, whatsoever, nor is it exactly equivalent to Torah. It's not interchangeable. He wants them, now that he knows who they are, to strengthen the pillars of Chumah. This is Moshe Rabbein Abimah Asferadi. Good. Hegidu, Hegidu, like it is him. I received your letter, your early letters, your latter letters. Valehim ha'chatumim anashim ha'shim nikru b'shemot. And signed, these letters were men of great stature, great importance. And I bless them, generally and individually. And from your words and from your rhythmic poetry and your questions, Nikad is evident. Rov ha'shikam b'torah. How much you love Torah, but not only do you love Torah, but significantly... As significantly as well, you pursue Chokhmah. You love Torah, you pursue Chokhmah. These are not necessarily parallel. You love Torah is intrinsic, it's part of what you do, but you also pursue this other discipline called Chokhmah. Right? And again, one can see from the very earliest of the Ramam's writings, his commentary on the Mishnah, which he wrote when he was 24, 25 years old, that Chokhmah and Torah are two distinct Disciplines. Torah is what we know is Torah. Chokhmah is philosophy and science as mentioned. Your great desire to get to the goal. And that the people that stand here are living They serve the people, great rabbis. Men of great renown, but he knows them. God will give you a great name. As those who have great name in the land. Good. The Ayyub Shirachem Benachem. These are all pleasantries. Nice, but not significant. Don't be difficult. Should not be difficult in your eyes. Alufai, my master, my teachers, that it took me such a long time to respond to your letter. I already wrote to you the reason in the letter that I wrote to Rabbi Gadol the Great, the from the rabbis of Lunel. The chosen of these great servants of the Jewish people. And I already solved some of his doubts. And he wrote to Rav Yonatan, which is one that we didn't read yet, but we have over here, maybe we'll do it next, that he's sick. Simply, the Rama was not in good health. He ran himself ragged. His day to night, night to day schedule. He describes one of his letters, he'd go, takes two hour journey to the, to the palace, his palace in Cairo. And then he would take care of the king's harem. For how many years uh, he did this, this procedure? And then, so two, three o'clock in the afternoon, came back. He had no time to eat. He had to see people who had medical issues. And finally, when he gets to eat something at six, seven o'clock in the afternoon, he's exhausted. He falls on his face. And he's able to ask some questions. And then he has a few hours of sleep. And he goes through the whole entire schedule again. Year after year, this took its toll around his body. And he tells us how physically ill he is. So therefore, he cannot send back a letter very quickly. He has no time to write. He'll tell you in a second. And I sent you with this letter, the third part of the Moreh, the Guide to the Perplexed. Now, let's look at the Moreh Nebuchim for one or two moments. What's Moreh Nebuchim really all about? We had read last week of the student, the student who had doubts, perplexity, confusions, that what issues? Science and religion. Philosophy and religion. He doesn't get it. He's been studying science, and there seems to be great questions that science and philosophy raise for the study of Torah itself. The most obvious area is the notion of anthropomorphisms in the Tanakh itself, which means when the Torah, Tanakh, ascribes to Kadosh Baruch Hu physical characteristics. We can add to that when the Torah ascribes to Kadosh Baruch Hu emotional characteristics, feelings, God's happy, God's angry, God's depressed. 
It should be a lot. It is a lot, but I tried anyway, that's what happens. Blocks, oh, everything. Yeah, it's very sensitive. Issues. Yeah, we have it all over the place. And we have two, we have a lock and an alarm, two different units, two, two different systems. So, so if, even if you open it up, you still have the alarm and vice versa. If you open the alarm, not open the lock. And the idea is to, you know, it's very, very valuable to what we have for you. So it's a good system, but people just abuse it. Okay. So we have over here is Moreno Bochim, which I wrote originally in Arabic, because of the confusion of the student that he loves most dearly. When a God is described physically, and philosophy says that God cannot be described physically because physical physicality limits God's omnipotent power. So therefore, it can't be. God cannot be physical. So the Ramadan says we have to reinterpret the first part of the Bukhim, 60 chapters. We reinterpret all of those phrases. God comes down. Let me come down and see. Should I come down? Let me come down and see. God's not up to come down. He cannot come down. It's a physical description of God coming down. Must reinterpret that. That cannot be God coming down. God does not come down. God occupies no space. God's beyond space. Beyond time. All of these descriptions in the first chapter of God raise tremendous questions for somebody who studied philosophy. Now, if you never studied philosophy and you believe God is in a place in heaven, fine. But once you study philosophy and you realize God cannot be neither in place nor in time, nor physically described, then you have to raise the question, what does the Torah mean by all these descriptions? Torah has 60 chapters, lexicographical chapters, trying to explain how all these physical characteristics, up, down, physicality, and as well these emotional issues, are not part and parcel of the ultimate divine being. God is far removed from anything physical. Now, not everybody's happy with that. People prefer to understand God physically because they need to have a physical God. How do you pr pray to an abstraction? God void of bodies, an abstraction. How do you pray to an abstraction? How do you pray to the oneness who is above all numbers, beyond oneness? God not simply a had. One meaning five, four, three, two, one. No, the oneness of God is beyond the one that comes after the numerical value two and one. It's a oneness that only can be conceptualized by people that have studied very deeply these whole issues. So in that first book, Dhamma tries to explain the Torah in order for it to co correspond to philosophy. Now that's obvious and easy because everybody agrees with that nowadays. Not everybody agrees with it a thousand years ago. There were rabbis who said that God does in fact have a body. In the famous comment of the Avad in Chote Shuvah, chapter 5, where the Avad says that being given the men greater people than him believe that God has a body because of the Torah and because of the Midrashim of Shemshot Adeot. And the Midrashim tells us that God has a body. Physical body. There's an interesting Kabbalistic work called Sha'ur Koma, which measures God's body, which is a 9th century work, which is, uh, where is it coming from? It was very rampant that people believe that God has a body. Sorry? Just clarification Does Rabbat say that those people are right? Or say that they make a mistake? No, they're wrong. They're wrong. They're not up to Korsim. The Rabbat says they're absolutely out of the ballpark. They're up to Korsim Gimurim. You cannot even talk to them. Everything that God's body is a mean up to something else like that. Come again? Love to have you, 4.15, you're here. We'll miss you. <laughs> Go over the handbook then. I'm sorry? <laughs> well, that's a little bit more difficult. It's a long trip. So, the Rambam and the, the, the Rambam and the Ravad would argue about this point. And there were, in fact, great rabbis who believed in the physicality of God. But the Rambam is staunch, he's tough, he's strong. Absolutely possible because philosophy says it's absolutely impossible. Hard to understand this whole Makhlubah, so it's so obvious that God does not have a physical body. But most people, although they admit nowadays that God does not have a physical body, most people will still be at the level of saying God is in place. God's up or down someplace. God's no place. God is place. God's beyond place. But these are difficult conceptions. So the first time when tries to at least explain away all of these issues. Now as well, in part two of the he talks a little bit about proofs of God's existence. The 25 propositions which one is accepted lead necessarily to a proof, literally a proof, a logical proof that God exists, cosmological proof, teleological proof, not the ontological. Rambam doesn't have the ontological proof, but there's the first two proofs that God is the first cause, etc., which doesn't turn anybody on as we discussed last night. Nobody's very excited by proving God cosmologically. There has to be a first cause. Why does it be a first cause? Because you cannot have an infinite set of regresses of causes and effects. In other words, obviously, that my parents caused me, and my grandparents caused them. I, there's a cause and effect, a chain. 
But there cannot be an infinite chain because you're living in a finite universe. And a finite universe cannot have an infinite cause and effect chain. Therefore, it has to be the first cause. Prime mover. Who's the prime mover of the first cause? God. Aristotle, straight. No big deal. So now we talk about that in the part two of Renevuchim. Then it goes into Nevuah. Into prophecy. How Nevuah Moshe is very different, distinct from all other Nevi'im. And what Nevuah is all about. How does God communicate with human beings? That is a very serious philosophical problem because that means God enters into the time frame. Can God, who is beyond time, enter into the time frame and do things? And of course, Nebuah shows that he, God does in fact do that, but then you're limiting God to a time frame, which is what has a little bit of trouble with, to begin with. And therefore, his expression of Nebuah is more natural, not supernatural. Nebuah is not God coming and talking to him, it's he developing himself spiritually, intellectually, to that point where he tunes in to the unending, infinite message of God that is always being projected. And the only role that God will play in the situation is that he's more near Nebuah that will stop a particular person from getting Nebuah. But anybody that wants to become an Avi, it's a natural phenomenon. You raise yourself intellectually and morally, and you have the right characteristics, you're an Avi. Because you raise yourself up to receive what God wants of us. That's Nebuah. Now, <clears throat> in part three, which is the most interesting and intriguing part of Nebuchim, the Bible, of course, engages in the issue of what is Eeyob all about? Eeyob, the problem of evil. What is Hashkachat Pratit all about? Divine providence, individualized. What does that really mean? Excuse me. Very interesting section. And of course, Ta'amea Mitzvot. How to explain the, the Mitzvot from 11, part 3, chapter 26, 27. He goes all the way to chapter 49 about Ta'amea Mitzvot, explaining the reason of the commandments. And finally, from 50 to 54, he talks about the philosophy, the epitome of what we all strive for. It's a beautiful section that we should study at one point or other. The past analogy. Who really enters into the past before the Olam? Who is it? Is it the rabbis? The Shemim Mitzvot people? Or the philosophers? And that's something that has to be looked at very carefully because that Ambam is very unique in describing the palace analogy, the metaphor of the palace, and how that ultimately describes who is in the palace of HaKadosh Baruch Who's walking around it and who enters into the palace itself. Good. So that's what in the Extraordinary work that a thousand years later is still studied diligently Profoundly important work. So the Ramah says, I just finished. Now, the third part of the Bukhim, Rashon Aravi, wrote in Arabic, that you asked, Achmerina did not speak or read Arabic. They were in France. And therefore, they asked them to please translate this work now into Hebrew. So the Kurdish. Mutinani. Oh, I wish. That I had days of old, as days of old, to do your request. I would have wanted to translate this book and all the works that I already had written, in the Arabic language, whose sun is now darkened. What does he mean by this? Very rarely do we find in the Rambam historical references. It's an interesting insight. You go through all of Mishnah Torah. And over in the Bukhim, you don't have anything that describes the contemporary political, social situation. Why not? Most works that you study are going to make references, especially you wrote so much. When the Bukhim is massive, when is massive, something about what's going on in the society at that time. Why did Ramam not make any references to anything that's going on in his letters speak historically? Not Mishnah Torah, not Moreno Bukhim. Not institutional Mishnah. Why not? Right? Very good. Because the Ramam's works are all time. They're trans-historical. Imagine that again, a thousand years later, every single Jewish library has a Mishneh Torah. I have at least five copies of Mishneh Torah with commentaries, five commentaries, different commentaries, all. We have three or four right over here of Mishneh Torah. It's still being used in fact, you can't move without the Rambam. Whatever you said is Talmud, Rambam. Interesting how um, one of the boys in the shul studying Talmud, right? Nice, we do all the Talmud that we do Mishneh Torah, which was so jarring to me. Mishneh Torah, after you do the Talmud, you do the Rambam. At Shacharuch, where did I have? He skipped a thousand years of, of, of Jewish work. I, I, I was surprised. That's what's good for him, so it's fine. He doesn't. No problem with it. But I said he's studying. But it's just so interesting how the first time I heard somebody does Talmud without the Rambam. The Rambam is everything. Formulating, conceptualizing, classifying all of Jewish law. The Rambam is everything. And there are those people, of course, who have given their lives over to the Rambam. So here he says over here that the son of Arabic learning of Arabic culture is now setting. And it's a pun on the word Kedar Hikdir. Nashon Kedar was the language. Why did Kedar mean 
Arabic is an interesting issue because we have that term in Yirmiyahu, the word Shkidat, it means those lands that are far to the east. Because originally Saudi Arabia, where the Arab movement began, was to the east of Yerush Israel. So Kedar meant that place that was far to the east, very far away. So Kedar became the name of where Arabic culture began to spread its wings and fly all over the world. So here we have the Rama saying that no longer is Arabic culture flourishing. Part of the reason is because when the Rambam experienced the Amuhadi's persecutions. And therefore he's saying that when you have persecutions of fanaticism, you're going to end learning. In uh, about 11, it was about 13, so it's 1148, 1150, the Amuhadis were a fanatical group of Islam that came out of Saudi Arabia, crossed North Africa, and attacked Spain up to southern Spain, which was Arabic up to that point. Remember, Northern Spain was Christian. Because in 732, Charles Martel stopped the Arabs from advancing above that line. So up to that point, the split in Spain was very clear, and these Arabs were either convert or killed. Some of them, of course, fled with his family, went all over the world, went to Fez, stayed a couple of years in Morocco, Fez, ultimately went to Halab, went to Israel, and ended up in 1169, settling in Egypt itself for the rest of his life. So, which is interesting. So now the Ram says that the sun of Arabic learning is now setting. I dwelled in the tent of Arabic learning. And it was great joy to me to which to take out that which is valuable, now which is garbage. What are you talking about? What's valuable and what's garbage? He's making a very shocking statement over here that now I want to take out my valuable works from the Arabic language and to return a lost item to its true owners. What's he talking about? His learning. Certainly the Arabic did take from the Hebrew. Yes, it's true, but he says, I wish I wrote in Hebrew. At the end of his life, he realizes that the languages, the language that's going to eternally endure is Hebrew, not Arabic. Which means today, again, that those Mishneh Torahs is read all of us in Hebrew, Mishneh Torah. It's a beautiful Hebrew, it's a simple Hebrew. Everybody can study Mishneh Torah. It's fantastic. But on the other hand, Arabic is a very dense language. And who's going to study Arabic? Study Mishneh Torah in the original. Or Spusha Mishneh It's amazing how he didn't see that. Originally on. That that was written in, in Hebrew, Rashi, for example, everybody knows. That was written in Arabic was lost. Because who's going to study Arabic? I think it's too many focus. The focus of the generation was Arabic, Arabic. The Jewish world was in Arabic. Right. Area. In Mishneh Torah, he focused on the future forever. But, so they wrote in Arabic, which is too local. Okay, that could be. Okay, I hear that. Good point. Yeah, exactly. So now he says, I wish I did it. And I see, Bort has a mass regrets over having been in Arabic, but the circumstances of the time surrounded me. And even at the Rashim Shahasiti, even those commentaries that I made, coming in Shabbat and even those issues that I wrote in the language of the rabbis, Shehen Adain Athelot. Here the word after that either means darkened, which means I haven't yet corrected them. I haven't yet went over them again. Lurish Ali Pinai have no time to detect or time to correct them or Gihan Achit Ula or Aulam. In other words, I wrote things and they just went out. I mean he might be referring to um his Pusha Mishnayot, he might be probably not. So I probably referring to maybe some aspects of Mishaturah. For example, his work on the moon and his calculations and all that, which is one of the most difficult sections of Mishaturah of how to read the moon and its cycles and all that, in order to determine the Jewish holidays, he says, I set this all out and I don't really have a, cha- a chance or the time at all to check it and to correct it. And it already went out, the Lord Ram to was already published. I have no time that I think I'm sorry? I just read it. Oh, that? It's hard. It's very tough. Yeah, very difficult. And very difficult, yeah. I mean, I, I've never gone through it completely myself, just seen it in, superficially. I had it in two ways. One way to do, uh, yeah, and do calculations, and read chapters and chapters. Right. And one way to go to the time, and just lined up, and just fix it, and that's it. One time. Yeah, very difficult. The other one, you can do it. 
Yeah, very difficult. I mean, I, just because, look at me. That's your answer. <laughs> I know, very difficult. That would, again, nobody says it. So maybe just plan to that. Might be that, that's the... Yeah. Well, had, somebody was doing it to do with the... Uh, no, Miss Cycle. And asked me what book. <laughs> <laughs> he was kidding with you. No, no. A young boy. Oh, uh-oh. 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 Uh
and then his son was good to the Jews. Still in all, the Rambam had seen the Crusaders. He had seen the Crusade of Saladin and Eleven fighting back against the line from the Christians, who won it with Richard of Lionhearted, back and forth. Is it only political over here? What is... On the decline. Good. Exactly that. Uh, the Rambam had seen that there's nobody any longer interested intellectually in what the Rambam was interested in. Now people are going to narrow their focus. When times are difficult, we have works of an Arabic historian who lived about 50 years after the Rambam, who wrote about the difficulties of the time from a purely Arabic perspective, the climactic difficulties. In one day, 14,000 people died of starvation, he described in this book. He tells you about the economic difficulties, the political difficulties, people streaming into Egypt, 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 because that's the only place that's a bit of stability. And even that is changing hands. So Ramam did not see a very good future for Judaism. And in fact, he was right in that the Ben Abraham, Ramam's son, did, as we mentioned last week, completely turn the corner and went in a different direction. Now Kabbalah are coming much bigger. Yerubis Hakme Akko, who was blind, who brings from Akko through Egypt, presumably, all the way, perhaps not necessarily the case, all the way back to Europe, the Kabbalistic writings. That's where Kabbalah now is beginning to be, to be manifest. Ramam had no clue about Kabbalah. So Rabbi Sakharako, who was contemporary with Ramam, a little bit older than Ramam, probably didn't go through Egypt, because Ramam would, would have met him, would have known something, one presumes. And Rabbi Sakharako doesn't mention about Kabbalah either. But pietism is now becoming the right philosophical, in quotes, religion of the Jewish people. Rabbi Abraham is a pietist, he's a Hasid, in his own terms. Hasid or pietist means you're no longer concerned about speculations and philosophy, you're not concerned about narrowly focusing in doing mitzvot to an extreme in order to exclude all other issues. It's what we mentioned before, is that in 1982-83, a spirit of pietism had spread over the Syrian community, where everybody now is going to be Haredi, wearing black suits and white shirts and black ties, and that's the only way that he was going to survive. That was the Haredi Sefer's image and dream. And it was right for that 10 or 15 years, his movement, and really is a movement, grew and flourished. He got tremendous amounts of money. He built an elementary school, and a high school, and a kolel. Everything was working out so well. And then people became disillusioned. Because the, with the Diddy's and Semisanti, the kids were not getting educated. So I didn't survive in the world. They're not becoming, at all, business and anything else. So Khaled says the answer is, they don't need to. We'll get, to, we'll get people to supply our needs. And at the end of the day, now it's 25 years later, they're not growing any longer, and many people are disillusioned with it. People are withdrawing their funds from it because how much are you going to keep perpetuating a system where it's not going to support itself? Constant influx of funds is necessary. It's a very serious issue, as well as splits within the ranks themselves of that movement as to becoming more Haredi or more moderate. When Masterton, Masterton left the movement to become more Haredi, he didn't say, I want to become more extreme. And he got his influx of funds. So he's doing this thing now until the people that are back in become wise enough to realize this is a Bidakhara Batala, what he's doing. Negative and dis- destructive. So that's what happens very Muslim. Hanusef, by nature, is a more moderate person. He told you she was flappish for 15 or 20 or 25 years. From 56 to about 19, uh, what was it, 80, 82, so he should be flappish. So he was obviously boys and girls together. Mixed. He's obviously a moderating force. He's not an extremist. <coughs> so there are cycles, there are sidurim. There are trends. There's a difference between extremists and limitations. And we tend to, the people at different, that tend to say we have to be moderate, they tend to mix moderate with limitations. With what? So with dedication. Be moderate is one thing, short and people don't say, what do you mean you're going to sit Sunday in the school, come for us? What do you mean you're going to come every morning so early, when you're going to see the family? You're right. So that's not dedication. Agreed. And, and therefore, at the end of the day, you lose the And that's what I think that's what is going to people who are, who are ultimately fanatics in his eyes. And it's then about you have to dedication. The people are moderate, not have to dedication. That is the problem. And ultimately, you're going to get the problem. It's the same, it's the same thing in our community. I think it's the same What is the dedication? How can you have 2,000 people and you cannot get 10 people in the class? 100% correct. And that was, it's interesting because I've always, when we discuss these issues, I've always said that you have. Shalitsu and religion, 
You have this, the Khamenei uh, fool's religion, and you have, quote-unquote, let's use the word modern orthodoxy, which is a new phenomenon in a certain community. What does that mean? That one was not dedicated. There are other people, and there are a lot of people, but it was always it was moderate, and it was not dedicated in the way that you describe it. one was not an intense fervor. So therefore, the born of that was a kind of fool, because it says, I want dedication. And with that, in his case, came also how to do it later on. Or that's correct. All of a sudden, they come into a model taxi, which is intensely dedicated, but they basically study 18, 20 hours a day. He's intensely dedicated to study of Torah, and in other communities, model taxi, where that's first, he's intensely dedicated to halakha, lemaaseh, study of Torah, and that's his main focus. 100% committed to halakha, 100% dedicated to Torah, and everything else. And yet, moderate. And yet, not extreme, not fanatics. See, community never was able to combine moderation with intense dedication. With the exception of this new, this new, not orthodoxy, which is dedicated and yet moderate. So this would be called a moderate, and yet intensely dedicated, open to the world, to study, to learning, to everything. And you're right. I think that the same community survived with moderation, but it lost it when it didn't have the dedication that needed to do exactly what you're saying. So I agree. I say, you say. Shoes sure don't say. Oh, let's see what you're doing. Right. Right. So which way? They, which way? Which is more common? The latter, of course. The They're missing that point. Yeah, the fervor. And intensity is lacking in the Shadat Zion type. And it is true, even in the modern Orthodox world, it is true. Lacking, because that real intensity for learning is missing. If you find that in the Haredi places. But on the other hand, in the Haredi places, you're going to lose out the Chokhmah element. When I mentioned, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, in this class, another class, that somebody had asked me about searching a kid from the Haredi school that I direct to Hillel, which is moderate. I said, look, it's not necessarily better or worse for the child. If you go to the school, he'll have dedication, intensity, you'd have to look keep Shabbat Mitzvot. You'll have all that. It's fantastic. So every kid there is Shabbat Mitzvot, every kid there is Yirat Hashem, etc. He'll never reach Chokhmat HaTorah. He'll never reach Yidiot on Hukot. He'll never reach Dat Elohim, is what I formulated. In Hillel, it should have less of a level of Yirat Shemayim, have less of a level of Shabbat Mitzvot, because the kids, it's a community school, so every kid comes in. Wherever you're at, my kids, sadly, maybe have three, four, five kids in the country that are from war. Terrible story. That's the way the community is. So we have kids at different levels. It's very, very sad in that sense. On the other hand, you graduate Hillel and you go to Israel to learn for a year, and you go to say to YU, something else like this, you reach Da'at Elohim. So we, we, you have to decide now do you want a child to be Shomer's Vort? Yes. Elohim? Yes. How important is Da'at Elohim to you? To know God in its philosophical sense. If it's very important to you, you'll never get it over there. If it's very important to you, you will only have a chance of getting it at Hillel, yet with YU and with Israel and all that. I feel with my own kids. My own kids, you see that you want that level of Dr. Elohim. I want that level of Dr. It's obviously me, so I cannot do that. And to lose that whole element, which will be critical for the Rambam, is not worth it for me. So I took my chances and sent my kids to Hillel, went to Israel. All my kids went to Israel to learn, and then hopefully they'll pursue it to achieve that level of Dr. Lokim. But you won't get it over there. <coughs> serious issue. Very serious issue. And I want to see that right now. That the winds of fanaticism, both politically as well as religiously, are now blowing in the area of, of Cairo. And therefore, we're into the future. Now, point number two of you is interesting. When you look at this, Kashir Arashim Nari Degel Moshe. To what is he referring? Which Moshe? Or? Or? Oh. Right. Question mark. Is a pun intended? That's important. How many kids you have? Fantastic. Great. That's wonderful. Good job. Good job. Fantastic. Yes. Is what? The following four words reinforce the letter. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's interesting. 
Because sometimes the Rambam will write that way. And again, Devil Moshe was a unique blend of Chokhmah and Torah. Extraordinary. You study the Rambam, you're not studying the Ramban. Two different perspectives on how to understand Judaism. Extraordinarily so. Not to say that, Moshe, that the Rambam was completely unique. There are many who followed in his footsteps. Sajid Gaon had preceded him with a, an attempt at integration of Chokhmah and Torah itself. But I'm not sure over here if he's saying to us over here that Rindigal Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, which of course he does primarily probably mean, but also Rindigal Moshe might be a reference to him as well. Everything. So why was it that he's the only one who completed the work? Maybe has the Hatarachid, because he's the Emir. I think It's extraordinary. The only one in the history of Judaism to ever write a complete, total, masterful work on all of Shas. Everything. Even things that are not. But the issue, or interesting also over here, is to point out that if the Ramam saw truth is whole. Maybe. Could be. But also, but he said it's because it's true. For the Ramam, truth is to be whole. If you study only one little part of Judaism, you're missing the whole. If you're missing the whole, you're missing truth. It's sort of analogous to any discipline. To get the whole picture, you're going to end up with truth. Because it's all interconnected. If I only study one Kedashah of the Torah, or one book of the Torah, and I miss the rest, I'm missing all the connecting links. To be a Jew full-rounded, and this brings one even to the discussion of last night, that if you want Emunah, you have to have the whole picture. You can't simply just focus on one little narrow area, then you're missing all the connecting links. The whole picture of Shema Mitzvot, Da'at Elohim, Yat Hashem, you put it all together, you have this whole integrated personality of philosophy, and of Torah, and it all works together, then you have... You get Imunat and you're convinced. You're, you're sure. Because it all is what it's whole. When you, you know what's interesting? It's um, intellectual that borders on the emotional. When you went to Shur of Rabbi and he began with point X, and he weaved a, a uh, kind of uh, tapestry of intellectual thoughts, where you're following along extraordinarily carefully, and you go and you see, at the end, you see a whole picture that he weaved. At the end, you walk out with not only an intellectual sense of, wow, look what he did, but you walk out with an aesthetic experience saying, huh, I saw something beautiful. I see a tapestry of ideas all interconnecting that all solve the original questions that were asked. So the Rambam over here is telling us something very similar. That the Rambam put together this Mishnah Torah, it's all together, it all interweaves. What begins with, in Mishnah Torah with Amut HaMudot is the best word. Beginning and going all the way to the end, Hashem is one tapestry. And if you're missing one strand of that tapestry, you're missing. You have no truth. You have the whole truth. So the Rambam is that one who put together that tapestry that provides one with an aesthetic pleasure, not an intellectual, but aesthetic pleasure, when one studies it all. So the Rambam is unique, certainly in that regard. David Moshe may refer to both. And to study very carefully of another Hashem. You're the only ones left that could study it all together. The in all the cities that are around you. I know that you establish schools always. You mentioned before. They're dedicated. And you are masters of understanding and knowledge. But in all of these eastern countries now that I'm in, I've got to Banim. Very sad comment. There's no more Torah being studied. Most of the big cities of Judaism, dead. And some of the smaller townships or cities, Gorsis is a stage right before death. It's a halakhic term, right? Right, on the verge of dying. That's Gorsis. On the verge of dying. A little bit left. And there are three different places, which is slightly alive. In other words, on the verge of dying, but there's a chance they may live, but also may die. In other words, Hulin means the person is almost dying, exactly what says, but there's a better chance that he may live. So there's a little bit more energy flickering of the eyes in that 
uh, there was economic, it was everything. It was political, it was economic, it was intellectual, it was religious. He didn't see anything positive. He had experienced Amahadi's persecutions. He's seeing nobody coming up, rising in the ranks of great minds who want to integrate. Again, as described, as described last week, it's Rabbi Salavajic, exactly. Salavajic spent 50 or 60 years establishing institutions, training, more rabbis than any of the history of the world. Thousands of rabbis he trained, gave some to. And then he's wondering, did I really make it? Was I able to really communicate my message to the world? Who stands now intellectually the head of modern orthodoxy? Nobody. But my land is wonderful, but spent so much time administratively that he didn't become the Tamir Acham Asum that you have to be, the master of Jewish literature. He's good, he's great, but not the master. Has been in philosophy. It also qualifies him. But all, and he's written a lot. He's done a great job. But he misses that last step. He's 70 years old. So now, there's no more time. Rabbi Lamb is 93. So maybe in the next 20 years, God willing, Rabbi Lamb now is retired from his university. No longer spending time administratively. Why don't you spend your time administratively eight, nine hours a day, ten hours a day, going to dinners, wearing a bow tie, raising money. He raised $100 million you know, in the last 20 years. When he came 25 years ago, why was the provincial bankruptcy? Gone. Finished. And closed the school down. He raised the money. did all the tremendous amounts of work to establish why you keep it going. Which is a wonderful place to keep going. So what I'm about that together. But he did, the scholarship suffered. And that was 25 years from 48 till 70. What happened? He didn't learn. So therefore, he ended up at that level. Which is, you know, great level, but it's not really one where we need best leadership of modern orthodoxy. He did a wonderful job, but he didn't miss that little or maybe large gap between he and Rabbi Salvation. So, thank you. But Chandler is old already, and again, he spent his time doing other things in the laboratory in biology, developing whatever he developed. And although, and he has a shul, which was so he ended up putting his hand in a lot of different pots. And also then, you don't rise to that level. He's not viewed on that same level. Yes, he dropped out. He's older, he's an older person, has other issues now. He speaks around the country, but... And he has his tehum. Science and medicine and Torah. So he writes on those issues. But even he's losing out to J.J. Leblach, who's doing much more of that because he's younger. So people have, the, you know, the, star, the sun rises, and it flares across the horizons for a while, and the sun sets. The sun of Jewish scholars is the setting right now, in terms of the celebration. What's interesting also, on the other hand, you have the rise in academic Judaism throughout the entire country. There are thousands and thousands of kids studying, majoring in Judaic studies on the undergraduate and on the graduate level, getting PhDs. So Jewish scholarship is really flourishing in America, wonderfully so, but modern orthodoxy is not. In other words, why you is made to turn to the right. They're not producing the same PhDs they produced years and years ago. The Torah and Kumar blending is now imbalanced in the level of Torah, Haridiyut, is now much higher on the rise in YU, because Rav Lichtenstein went to Israel, who was the next candidate. He could have been wonderful. But Tversky, Rabbi Salavich's son-in-law as well, was at Harvard and a PhD. He did all academic scholarship. Rabbi Chaim Salavich's son went to scholarship, PhD work. The irony is, is that once Rabbi Salavich had shown so brilliantly who could follow his footsteps. So if someone to scholarship, scholarship, Rabbi became head of the Shiva in Israel, which is wonderful, extraordinary, but it's his own brand of Uchman Torah together. And, it's, and it emphasizes less Uchman than it does Torah, his unique anaphora of Gemara, etc., so the end, you have nobody there. So Mr. Lechik, the last days of his life, as tried last week, would probably raise the same question. What next? I don't see anything on the horizon. I see Hadid Yut. I see everybody filling my shoes. It's, it's the um, sad lament of great people. What were Robert Chirelli's final thoughts? Did I make it? Did I do it? Am I, did I put together a movement that's worldwide? Yes. Impactful? Yes. I did a great job? Yes. But what next? The, what, the past is great. It's glorious. What next? I think every great leader raises the question and, the, and often, if not always, you're insecure with the thought that's not going to be a continuation or a growing of what you started. Well, Shabbat should bemoan what he did right now. It's, the movement is split. Mashiach, that Mashiach. Was it going? It's going to die. It's going to really die. There's nobody ahead of it any longer. You need a head. There's nobody ahead of it any longer. All kinds of risks within the movement itself. And why you itself as well. There's no Rabbi Salavetchik now on the horizon. And I suspect that even among his students, he saw, let's say, Rabbi Shachter, his Haredi. He saw, let's say, um, even the rabbis of one who was close intimate, 
They didn't achieve the levels of philosophy that he achieved. So they had learning, no philosophy. Philosophy and no learning. So that unique blend, and that history of the Jewish people, just is lost. The Rambam and Rasul Avedchik. It's really two pillars at opposite ends who both, same problem. You don't find that. And, but that's the nature of a human being. Do you find your child always walks in your footsteps? You have your unique brand of living life, wherever it may be. You went to college, you didn't go to college, you did study, you didn't study. Your children will be different than you are. They can be exactly your clones. That's supposed to be. They're different. They have different experiences, different intellectual uh, levels. Everything's different. And you hope it's in the right ballpark, at least. It's not going to be you. My kids are not, not going to be me. I have my experiences, whatever they were, whatever celebration, which he's not going to have. Nothing even close to that. And whatever I had, which I'm very happy for, in scholarship and learning, anything. I don't know Moshe. What do you mean? Well, no, 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 you have you have two did two didn't. Some did at least. Very difficult. So that's really what happened. So the Ram over here says that nobody's going to carry on. The large cities are dead to Torah. Small cities are going to serve, on the verge of death. And there's three or four that are on the verge of life. In all of Israel and all of Syria, there's one city, Hainu Aram Sova, He Ahlad or Halad, They have some rabbis who study Torah. Interestingly, of course, missing over here is Chokhmah. They don't kill themselves over it. If you want to make it into our world, you have to kill yourself. That's what it is. Kill yourself over to that. Day and night. Because what it tells you. Dedication. Dedication. Intense dedication. That you don't worry about your Armani suits. You don't worry about going to the football games. Day and night study to that. Those people are going to achieve success. Others who don't, don't. Of course, in all of the diaspora. Of course, in art. Babylonia. Shnam Shoshah Gadgirin. Two or three little seeds of growing. In Yemen, in and Arkadis. Small. No, it's a very, very cheap vegetable. Okay, okay, vegetable. Okay, so what do you mean? Very minimal, very insignificant. Right. Okay, so nothing there. Kulami Aram Skimba Talmud, some of them study Talmud, or in Nama Kirin, what's the common Torah? They only do Drosh Vakabesacha, which means what? They are doing Dura short to get a reward. They're not doing it with intense love and dedication. The Drosh Vakabesacha, they're on the outskirts. Bukhah, Mithah, Devu, Mehma, Nashim, Barayam, Amon. Now, already, some men of means donated money, Gacha Baka, and sent to us. And they bought three copies of Mishnah Torah. The Katvu Neshad, and Katvu of 46 Shachu. When actually they gave a copy to every place, in every boundary, in every city. That is what enlightened their eyes, which came after him, and improved their deeds. Now, interesting, of course, over here is that Mishnah Torah is not only a book of Halakha, it's a book of philosophy as well. Tremendous amount of philosophy, psychology, history of, of the Zerah, etc. in Mishneh Torah as well. So, the Rambam, even if he failed to project his Chokhmah and Torah integration on the Buddhist scene through the book of Moreh Nebuchim, he certainly did so through the book of Mishneh Torah, where the first four or five chapters of the Holy Spirit Torah, the beginning open chapters, is all about philosophy, and you have to read it. If you read it, you become philosophized. On the other hand, maybe history had its final laugh on the Rambam because a Bojashivot, which bemoaned the study of philosophy, skipped those sections. You don't need those sections. We don't know about those sections. So you start from the next book, which was about, you know, you skip the whole first book. You want Hachot Berachot, Kiyat Shema, that's Sefer Ahava. You want Shemitah, Mitshemitah. All that, you skip the opening deeper philosophical chapters of philosophy and science. On the other hand, Everyone has a last laugh because even in the halakha of the middle books, before the Chot, Chot Melachim, it talks about Mashiach, when the philosophy comes out, even smack in the middle, you always find 
ויש את טעמי המצוות, ואין אף אחד קורבנות לזה, או חגיגה, או שמתאב יובל שעת התותין, הלכה תותין, it always throws in words of philosophy, words of speculation, words of ideas, that any discriminating student is going to wake up and say, wow, look at what I'm saying over here, we'll go back to those other chapters that I skipped. So, although some issues were, they certainly banned the study of Moreno Bukhin, and even chapters of Mishra Torah, so the Rambam may have had the last laugh, because it's still around, people are still studying it. And his eyes have to be open. If you have a little bit of an inclination, you see the Rambam does drag you along to the house of Philosophy, or the house of Torah as well. Until India. So he sent out these copies even until India. Hold them. But the Jews in India, and every day to Rashi Bukhin, they don't understand to Rashi Bukhin, they don't have the winter that Interesting statement. They have no religion except for the rest of Shabbat and they have a Brit Milah. Which is an interesting historical comment that in 1199 there were Jews in India who had some smattering of religion that rested on Shabbat and they did Brit Milah on eight days. There are certain places where we don't know where the Aligin actually is, but no 45 tells us. We don't know where Ezekiel Kavana is. We don't know. They have the religion of Ishmael, or the, under the domination of the Ishmael, of uh, non-domination, Islam, they only, only, only read Torah Shemichtad Kipshuta, and in 47, they are seen Kipshuta. That's very serious. Because, according to another edition, in footnote 47, of the same letter, we have Osin Kipshuta, which means they do which says literally. What does that mean? Well, they, no, look, they don't think if they just read Shutab, that means they're missing the philosophy aspect. That means they're meaning they got as a body to them. They don't trust about them. Right, so that means what do they do, for example, on Shabbat? They mix it in the dark, because there's Lotor Esh, Mokhobosh, Mokhobosh, Shabbat. Right? Look to Aru Ish. I don't know what it means. I don't know. It means there's no scholarship. That's all. Certainly, I'm not saying there's no scholarship. When it says, Osin Kipshuta, they do it according to the straight letter of the law. We have it. They may be parallel. Right. You can look at the Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I have no longer have the strength to come and go. 
שקבע את זה קאדי מסטארטים, לא לא משנה, מה קרה בסוף? למרות שכתיבה זה בסוף לא. אלא רוצה להגוף body itself by stone, שהוא his body ידוע, holy, knows illness, ובואו יפרח, יסייע על אתכם, and God should help you, שמחים שזה שייך למיין, תקראו אז אמן. So he's putting a lot of responsibility and obligation on them to carry the banner of Dugan Moshe Abokhma and Torah. This unique combination of bringing and bridging the gap between those two disciplines. The interesting question over here, is this all rhetoric? Or is this really what the Ramah Muli is writing at the end of his days, saying that you now have the ball to carry and do it? I would think the latter. I think the Ramah had very good reasons to see the decline of Judaism work type. The Ramah had also this, this awareness that nobody's really studying Torah to the intense degree having the dedication they must have, and he's very depressed at seeing everything dissipating, evaporating, what's going to happen next. He sees a spark and ember of the culture of the learning of Torah in Europe and Provence that now hopefully will spread. Does it really spread? No. What happens in the 13th, 14th century is that the shift of learning goes to northern France, Germany, Achmei Ashkenaz, and of course they study the way they study. And for another three or four hundred years, you don't have again until the Renaissance those kinds of rabbinic personalities that are able to integrate Torah and Chumah together. Of course there are some isolated exceptions. The Ramban still is flourishing till 1270, who Ram didn't really know about. And you have, at the end of that, maybe you have Babanel, who was Chumah and Torah together. But the same, the Ram did not see any hope other than with Hachmeh Unel. Not exactly accurate, there were other people who came along, but Ramah was not very optimistic as to what's going to happen. So that's the letter Now, next week we're going to do a letter that the Ramam wrote to the Bibliothek of Bayan, which again has some administrative, communal, and halakhic issues in one work. Thank you.